This is my comeback story. This is my comeback story. This is Trey Lewis with Good Landing Recovery, and you're listening to The Comeback. What does love look like? This is going to be, or hopefully serve as a guide to help loved ones who are walking out the early seasons of active addiction. It doesn't have to just be the early seasons, but you know, here's my dilemma. As I talk to parents, spouses, siblings, day in and day out, they are worried about their family members. They're on the, you know, oftentimes the, the front end of this journey of addiction, and they are looking for the best way to be able to approach their loved one to be able to get and to achieve a desired outcome which is going to be sobriety, going to be abstinence from this particular drug that is destroying their lives. And what happens so often is, is that that people come and, you know, you, you, you hear about the impression that he's going to class and that he's doing great things and only to find out that he's addicted to alcohol, Xanax and cocaine, and he has a 0.0 GPA. And little Johnny has now been kicked out of the school. And so the parents are sitting there thinking, you know, how do we help this precious child? And somebody comes up with a great idea. You know what? We need to buy him a car and then get him his own apartment because we need to get him away from those friends. Little Johnny's not the problem. It's those people that he's hanging with. And so they're clearly, we need to give him more money and to now give him. And so you, you, you see the foolishness of this. And most of you who are listening right now, you can understand immediately, like, that's a bad idea. But how many people, how many parents get manipulated day in and day out on a scenario just like I described, and instead of doing what is necessary, they end up doing the complete opposite. And, you know, I think as is somebody who has been in ministry for years, who cares about the broken, who cares about those that are addicted. I've been there myself. I know what that's like. And just recently, I was I was speaking in Rochester, New York. And while I'm there, I get a phone call from a dad. And as he calls me, his son is still lying on the couch in his living room who had just died from an overdose. The paramedics are in there, and they're going through their protocol. And I'll never forget the dad says to me, he goes, my son just wasn't made for this world. And while in that moment I was able to show empathy, I was able to understand at some level of just this this dad trying to grasp for some type of, 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 of thought, some type of idea of something that he could apply to this situation to make himself feel better, to try to bring some type of, of, of reason for all of this happening. But at the exact same time, there was this frustration on the inside of me because I was familiar with this scenario, and I know that that dad could have done more. That dad could have put in more roadblocks. He could have put in more checkpoints. He could have done more things to make it very, very difficult for his son to continue or to prevent his son from continuing to get high. And it's those things that that it's it's always the the, the funeral where it, it is the person live like hell and you've got the pastor standing up there talking about the scripture, well done, 
thy good and faithful servant. And everybody and their mama knows that that guy's up there lying through his teeth. And what he's trying to do, and I get that it's like, hey, maybe it's not time to drop the bomb in that moment, in that particular service. But at the same time, we also have to be able to look at these situations and say, hey, there's something to learn from. Okay, your son just died from an overdose, and that's tragic, and we want to be able to comfort the father and the mother and to be able to show them love and to be able to, to help them walk out of this. And at the end, you know, the kid and, and, and the person who has died of the overdose, that there's a level of responsibility there. They're not just a victim because their parents didn't make the right choices, but we also need to learn what does love look like on, in, in the middle of active addiction. And I'm going to give you a few practical steps. Number one, you need to understand what you're dealing with. You need to understand the disease of addiction. And some of you are saying, hey, I don't like that disease. I, whatever. The monster of addiction. Whatever you want to call it, it's a beast and it's a monster. And that whenever the addict becomes chemically dependent, then they start processing the drugs and the alcohol as a primitive need. Just in the same way that a normal person needs food, air, and water. You ever try to cut off somebody's oxygen supply lately? How'd that work out for you? Okay, it's not going to be a good day. What is going to happen there is that they're going to fight and they're going to do anything within their power to be able to get back that oxygen. So whenever you try to go and negotiate... And I, and I hear people say all the time, well, you know, it's got to be their choice. Well, let, let me tell you something. I, I, I hear you own that. But at the same time, when somebody chooses or when somebody picks up or an addict relapses or somebody gets addicted, they are no longer choosing. They have forfeited the ability to be able to choose. You know, that, that's some, you know, that old school mindset of just thinking, I just don't know why they don't get it together. He just doesn't want it bad enough. Like, what? just please <laughs> go read, you know, just Google any recent article on addiction and, and please get up to date with what you're dealing with. And, and, and what you don't want to do is go and sit down with somebody who is a master manipulator, who knows how to move heaven and earth to make sure that they can continue to get high and to sit down with them and ask them what they think that their path of treatment ought to be. Now, we realize that there's certain situations and it's not always that cut and dry. And sometimes you have people who are functioning and they've got the finances and you have to be more creative in the intervention. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what I need parents to understand, you need to, you need to know and to be able to comprehend what it is that you're dealing with on the front end of addiction. The next thing you want to do is you want to define what is important. What is your desired outcome? I want to remind you that all treatment centers are not created equal. I'm a Christian, and I'm going to assume that a lot of you who are listening to the comeback are also Christian. If you've been listening for a while, you know what we're about. And if you're still here with me on episode 29 or 30 or where we're at right now, I'm going to kind of assume that we share the same values, that we, that we love Jesus and that we don't want anything or anybody in our family to ever come off of that. Okay, We don't want them to be uh, persuaded otherwise. What you have to understand is that, you know, whenever you go and you're looking for a facility for your, for your child or for your loved one, 
and you Google best treatment center in Atlanta or you Google best treatment center in Memphis, Tennessee or wherever you are, and it starts to pull things up. It starts to pull up a list of treatment centers and you have to get past the website and the credentialing and all of the marketing glamour and you have to get down and say, what do we really value? Because a lot of these programs that are very strong clinically, they're not a Christian program. And just because somebody has all the initials after their name and, and, and there needs to be you know, real value attributed to professionals, at the end of the day, what's important to me, and God forbid if any of my children should ever struggle with substance abuse, what I would never do at their most vulnerable moment is to put them in front of a clinician who's not a believer, who's not a Christian. And as, as a matter of fact, some of them may actually think that the root cause of their addiction is because of their religion. And so while they may end up leaving there and getting clean, all they've done is that they've traded one lie for another. Now, we can celebrate the fact that they've been clean, but what if they embrace some other form of a higher power? What if they embrace a doorknob? What if they embrace a pair of tennis shoes? Okay, now, while we would still say, hey, maybe it's better than active addiction, I know one thing is that I would not want my loved one at their most vulnerable moment to be in front of somebody who is going to be serving up something other than the real Jesus. So number three, we need to land on a solution. Every king that goes to war is going to count the cost. And trust me when I tell you that you are in the middle of a war, of a real battle. And oftentimes you get what you pay for. Now, I'm not saying you need to go empty your 401k and exhaust your savings account and go completely broke over this. But you need to understand, it's just like I talked about earlier, is that when I say all treatment centers aren't created equal, what if you go to a program where there's a couple of hours of Bible study and the rest of the day they're chopping down trees? Now, I'm not saying that that model doesn't work for certain people, but there's a lot of clients that are going to come in that don't need to deal with their work ethic, that they need more clinical help. They need to see a psychiatrist. They need to see a nurse practitioner. They need to see a physician. They need to see a master's level therapist. And all of those things become very important to this holistic approach in presenting a solution that is going to pay dividends in their life, to be able to present a solution that is going to be able to really transform your loved one's life. Number four is going to be the intervention. Before intervening, and and you hear the horror stories of this, you know, and you attempted to try to talk to your son, you attempted to try to talk to your daughter, but the truth is, is that whenever we go, we need to be able to do the research. For example, how will they likely respond? Do they have any weapons? Who do they respond to best? Who controls their money? Have they made threats to harm themselves or to harm someone else? What are the laws in your particular state that are in favor of getting someone help? And also, whenever you go in to do the, the, the intervention, you have to make sure that on the front end that all these things have been discussed, that everybody is on a united front. I mean, the last thing that you want to do is to go into an intervention. Everybody knows that the loved one is addicted, that has a problem with methamphetamines or has a problem with alcohol. Everybody agrees with that. But if you didn't talk about it on the front end, that somewhere in the middle of the intervention, that somebody breaks down. You know, let's say that dad all of a sudden has a weak moment, says, well, maybe he doesn't need treatment. Maybe we can go ahead and and try this a different way. And then there's the way out. And the person was able to manipulate the situation, and now they're not going to get the help that they so desperately needed. It is extremely important to have everybody on the same page. Now, number five, 
and this is after they have landed in treatment. What is love going to look like once they get in treatment? What should we expect? Should we expect that whenever they cross over the threshold of the treatment center door, that they are miraculously cured? That once little Johnny walks through those doors and sits down for intake, then we should never have any more problems ever again. As a matter of fact, as you'll hear often that it's said that the alcohol or the drugs is only a small part of the problem. And the truth is, is that we need to understand that there is a good chance that whenever they get in there, that they are going to look for every reason to prematurely abort the process. They're going to come in, possibly. Some of them are going to love it. They may have this first few days of a honeymoon phase, and then all of a sudden reality hits them that they're in treatment and they feel like they need to be making money or they need to go back to the children that they've neglected for years and all of a sudden they're ready to become the father or the mother of the year. And, and, and we need to understand and to be able to anticipate that, hey, some of these things might come our way. And what we need to, to do is to make sure that we stay on that united front, to make sure that we understand that this is the nature of the disease of addiction, that they deal with the disease that tells them that they don't have a disease. And they're looking for every reason to get out of the one place that is going to be able to help them and that's going to be able to save their lives. These are hard discussions. And a lot of times these are hard truths that get served up to a parent who's thinking something opposite. And they're thinking, oh, what, what love needs to look like in this situation is, is that I need to give them more money or I need to you know, get them or, or maybe move them to a d- different geographic region. Let me remind you, wherever you go, there you are. And it's something that has to be dealt with. And oftentimes that it's going to have to be, it's going to be painful and it can be messy on the front end. But if you'll stay the course, that the chances are very, very good that you are going to see your loved one walk into long-term recovery. Guys, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It is a privilege and an honor to be able to serve you. If you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction, please give us a call. It's 770-570-7422.